We talked for too long here. Let us pray. (laughs) May the power of thy holy cross, O Lord, go before me wherever I may be and lead me through the day. In thy mercy, so guide me today that my enemy may find in me nothing that is his but all that is thine. Or should aught of evil be found by reason of my frailty, may thy loving kindness quickly blot it out. May thy holy angels guard me and bring me safe and unharmed unto the evening hour. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Prayer very reminiscent of uh, the prayer of St. Patrick. If you know the prayer of St. Patrick, if you don't, you should look it up. Uh, It's very, very good. Also the prayer of St. Columba who is one of my personal favorites. St. Columba was an Irish saint like St. Patrick, but he was a missionary to um, the Scots. So I have an affinity for St. Columba of Iona. Columkill is, uh, as he's often said um, as well. So you wearing orange on the 17th? (laughs) I'm probably wearing black on the 17th. (laughs) I, I don't take a side there. I think my wife uh, will wear green, though. She'll probably make my daughter wear green as well. Okay. Um, let's do some work here. So, we're still, we're still in here on confession and absolution. We're behind because of last week, and we're kind of a little bit behind because of the last 20 minutes here, but that's a good kind of behind uh, because there's lo- always lots to talk about. So. The, last week, remember, we're, we're getting into the last part, really, of confession and absolution, which is, you know what it does, and you know what it is, but what does it look like? That's, that's the question I, I, want, I really want you to think about when we go forward from here, talking about theology, because this is another one of those Lutheran things where if, if you're so... If you're emphasizing the word, 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 okay, uh, it's the body and the blood of Christ. Okay, how? Well, by the word. Okay, but what does it look like? Well, I don't know. It's, uh, and you say, well, if you can't answer the question, what does it look like? And that doesn't mean you, that answering the question, what does it look like, means you have to explain it. Like, what does the Eucharist look like? It looks like heaven. There, that's what it looks like. But that's, what, what does church look like? Well, it looks a specific way. Why do we, what does your faith look like? It looks like this. Um, we don't measure faith in like quantities. I have 14 liters of faith. I, I've, how many ever faith units? Well, how do you measure faith? What does faith look like? What does baptism look? What does salvation look like? You know, because things have. <clears throat> th- th- there's an importance of physicality, because you are physical. This was part of last week. Uh, to say that. To say you know it's easier to say to the man your sins are forgiven, or to say it's easier to say take up your mat and walk is to miss the point, which is that neither one of them is easier than the other. They're exactly the same thing because ailments of the body are connected to ailments of the soul, which at its ultimate root is sin. Your sinful condition, it's a cancer in your body that is, in, that is incurable as you're living in this sinful world. That's why you come to the hospital and get your your medicine repeatedly. And, and then, you know, it's manageable while you're living. It'll eventually catch up with you and you'll eventually die, even though you're not really going to die because you're already, you've got all of the medicine and everything in place so that when you die, you're not really dying. It's just like taking a nap. Uh, but there is this physicality to it. Your cancer causes side effects. There are, there are things that happen because of the the ailment that you have. Every disease has symptoms, and the ultimate disease that you have is sin, something that's passed down to you from your parents. You can never get away from it. So there has to be a physicality to that because sin also manifests itself physically. So absolution, you have to say, well, what does this look like? Because there has to be physicality to it. That's why when the pastor absolves you, I, when I, I went on that little soapbox rant about touch. You know, I hate it when pastors go to absolve you and they get so close to your head and it's like, here, I forgive you all your sins. And you're like, oh my word, just touch me. You know, three inches away from my face and you're like, Ugh. I just, you know, personally, it's like you don't like me. Or the pastors that get weird about, well, I don't want to touch you and then touch somebody else. And they're like, man, who cares? It's the church. Like, you're drinking out of the same cup. Come on. Um, get over yourself. Be a community. Like, it's not the, you, you sh- 
Do you, did you ever share pop or tea or water with your, with your child? They get that toddler slobber all over the cup. And then what do you do? You just kind of go, eh. and then you just keep drinking it. I mean, floaters. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, this is the joke I always make about the chalice, right? Is why, does, why do I make a point of consuming it all in front of you instead of just covering it and waiting until everybody's out? Because I want you to see me do it. Because it's so important to me that you actually see me take the very last drink of that so that you know there's nothing, if pastor's willing to drink all of the dregs with every spit fleck and mustache hair and you know, everything, if I'm gonna drink that, well then everybody else has nothing to be afraid of and that's sort of the whole point, which is mostly a joke. Although, there is a, th there is a thing called a, uh, a fly spoon, which is a liturgical, uh, it's a little liturgical slotted spoon, and it is called a fly spoon because if a fly happens to fall into the blood of Christ, you take the fly spoon and you pick the fly up and let the blood of Christ drain off, and then, you know, you kind of have to put the fly into the, the purificators to hold on to it because, you know, it's covered in the blood of Christ now, so you don't want to let the drops of Christ's blood go to waste. So then you have to dispose of it. Like a few weeks ago, there was paper towel in the chalice. And I didn't, know, I didn't even look. There were two big pieces of paper towel <laughs> that they had sort of, I guess, dusted it out and then it stuck. And I didn't even look. I just poured the, the wine in there right before and then I consecrated it. And when I went to commune myself right there, I looked and I thought, <laughs> so I kind of like, but there was no way for me to get him out. So the elders just kept it really full so that nobody looked in when it was going. And then, and then when I, so when I consumed the rest of it, I was sort of, I pursed my lips and I was, so I, I, I drank it and then I looked down and there was only one in there and I thought, well, <laughs> it's only paper. But then I, you know, you, you take the, the purificator and you clean it all out and then you just, that, that little piece of paper towel, you wrap it in the purificator and set it aside so that when they're cleaning it up, they can take that and dump it outside with the, with, with the water they use to clean it all. So even those little things, those little impurities that fall in. But anyway, th there's a physicality to all of that. Why, why does Jesus provide means? You know, why, we talk about the sacraments as means of grace Sure, yeah, that's fine, although I, would, I don't really use that term anymore because that term's gotten dirty. Um, there's a lot of talk about means of grace now that really isn't in keeping with what we mean by means of grace, so I don't use it. Sort of like I don't use real presence because everybody can say real presence, but nobody's saying the same thing. You say real bodily presence, because there's no getting around that. Is Jesus here or is he not here in his body, standing right in front of me, and am I eating and drinking his actual body? There's physicality. There. So the means have to, the means exist so that you can receive the spiritual physically, because you are physical, but you need the spiritual, and so that the spirit can receive its things physically. You see, you are not the union of body and soul. You are a soul that has body and a body that has soul. It's, that's why death is such a terrible thing, because it rips apart, not like two things that have been glued together, like, oh, well, they came apart, we'll put them, we'll fix it. It's not like death is Jesus, you know, oh, well, it's, I'll just get the old hot glue gun out and I'll fix you at the resurrection, you'll be fine. No, it's that there's a fundamental, fundamental destruction of who you really are, body, body and soul together. That's one, it's Bible math, one plus one is one for you. So you need something physical. Uh, and the physical nature of the means provides you with a concrete reality. If I said, I'm going to give you salvation, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bam, now you're in the church. What do you, I mean, what do you think about that? Is that something that you can look back on and go, I am 100% certain that what I got was great, and I'm going, to, I'm going to build, you know, that's my foundation for everything. My faith rests on that. Bam! There you go. Receive the Holy Spirit. Bam! Casey, you got it. Just take, just take my word yeah. for it. Yeah. Okay? You're supposed to push them so that they that, oh, That's right. That's right. Fall into somebody. Okay. Right. But, you know, the, the point being, no, if, it's, if, it's, if all I ever give you is something purely spiritual, it doesn't mean anything to you. You need something. So when I actually touch you and I sprinkle you with water, 
then you can look back and you can say, yeah, I actually, there was a concrete reality there. It wasn't just that he waved a wand or touched, or, you know, or held his hand over me. It was that there actually was something there. There was actually, uh, my head got wet. There was, a, there was something physical there. I know that Jesus touched me because he actually touched me. Um, I know that Jesus forgave my sins because he actually touched me and made the sign of the cross. And he actually said physically into my physical ears, your sins are forgiven. This is a problem I have. Pastor said, the Roman Catholics have it all wrong because the Roman Catholics say that faith's object is the sacraments, but we Lutherans know that faith's object is Christ. It's Jesus who is the object, not the sacraments. Now, what's the red flag there? Right, what's the difference between Jesus and the sacraments? There isn't any. There isn't any. That's one of those things where you say, well, that's not what the Roman Catholics say, and that's not what the Lutherans believe, so I don't know what's going on. Um, right, this is why I don't use the phrase means of grace the way that people want me to anymore, because the means of grace, in that sense, separates it from Jesus. Is it Jesus or isn't it Jesus? It's the means, it is the means of grace, but that, by means of grace, it means that is the way by which Jesus comes to you and touches you and talks to you and grabs you and holds your hand. That's the, that's the means by which something spiritual is made manifest physically for you. It doesn't mean that it's like a funnel where all can't, can't drink of the fire hose unless it's in a funnel and then the means of grace becomes nothing more than some kind of a transition funnel that makes something now that is palatable for you. It's not like that. This is the way that Jesus comes to you. That's why the office of the ministry then is a means of grace. So let's look at the catechism here. You have concrete reality in the office of the ministry. Now we looked at John last week. Um, we looked at John chapter 21 where Jesus breathes on the disciples and he tells them, hey look, um, I forgive sins. This is my authority. Now I give it to you. Now you have this authority. Now go and do it. The office of the keys. So page in your hymnal, or if you have your actual catechism, it's the office of the keys. Um, 326 in the hymnal. So this is under, it will be under the heading of confession very often. The office of the keys. What is the office of the keys? The office of the keys on the left hand, yeah, 326. The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Okay, so that's it. Um, there's something to note here, and that is when it talks about the authority that Christ has given to his church, does that, is, is the authority given to the church the same as the authority given to the congregations? Is, is church the same as congregation? That's the question. And I don't mean in the colloquial sense, like I've got to go to church or I'm a member of this church, because that's synonymous. But when I say, and when Luther says, that the office of the keys is an authority that Christ gives to the church, is that him saying the congregation? Well, I would think the congregation is the members of the church, whereas the church is the leadership. Of the church. No, no. I, I was for, uh, no, so here's the problem. There are lots of problems with that, but, and, the, and actually this is me going against sort of what the popular Lutheran opinion is, which is published by CFW Walther, first synodical president. And he, had, he wrote a book called Church and Ministry that I go on record again and again and again that I think is actually the Antichrist. I, I, it, is, it is, quote, it, it is literally the Antichrist because all of the models that Christ sets up that says this is how things work, that book says, no, it's going to be this way. The power is the, the people's. And they say, no, the power, Jesus says, well, the power is mine and I'm giving it to the church. And then they say, oh, the church is the congregation. That means the people have the, so that the pastor forgives sins by authority of the congregation that gives him the power to forgive sins. So that when the pastor says, I forgive you your sins, you know, the problem with that is that he's basically saying, all of your sins I'm forgiven, 
by your power to forgive sins, which you give to me to forgive your sins, which isn't the way that it works. The church is not the same as the congregation. It's the same thing that I told you as individuals last week, which is that you belong to the church, but the church does not belong to you. The congregations belong to the church, but the church does not belong to the congregations. The church is the Holy Catholic Church, little c. And when I talk about things in a, in a sermon like Mother Church, that's what I'm referring to, the broad overarching church, the apostolic church, the apostolic church with the apostolic doctrine and the apostolic authority. Uh, so, that, so here's another example. If it comes to excommunication, who has the, who has the authority to excommunicate? The pastor, by virtue of? Jesus. Yeah. You're right, church, Jesus. Give me something. The office. Yeah. You're right. You just, I get picky about how I want you to say things. The, 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 the pastor has the authority of the office of the keys, not to use willy-nilly, and not because he's a great, fantastic guy and he wants authority. It's by virtue of the the, the office that he bears. It's not a personal power, and it's not a power to be lorded, um, and because it is a, an authority of the church, it is one that comes with specific rules. I, you, you, a pastor can't just walk around excommunicating people he doesn't like. That's against the rules of the church who has given him that authority. So when we talk about the church and the church's authority, and the gifts that Christ gives to the church in terms of authority and power, how, what does that look like? What does it look like to say that the church has this authority? It looks like your pastor. That is why the church appoints ministers. And it is the ministers that the church appoints, not the congregations who call a minister, that has the authority. A pastor is a pastor by virtue of his ordination, not by virtue of his call documents. More pastors need to understand that. They do. Uh, They're getting to Eighth commandment is telling me that I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> uh, we, I know of a church right now that a family member belongs to, and my family member is just so frustrated, and I said, it's a shame you don't have better leadership because of the things that are going on. Willy-nilly members going in all sorts of directions, and there's no... Yes. There's no leadership. Yes. To sort these things out. Now, I do want to say this. That doesn't mean that the pastor is the dictator because the pastor is the one who holds the office and wields the authority. So the, again, there are rules that go along with how church authority is wielded and every pastor is supposed to know that. Any pastor worth his salt does know that and takes it very seriously. Excuse me, that is why a church establishes elders because elders assist the pastor in a lot of those spiritual things. It's Excuse me, it's, the elders exist as an extension of the pastoral office. So they do not wield the authority of the pastor, but they assist the pastor in bearing the burden. You know, like Lord of the Rings, when, um, when Frodo is talking to Sam and he can't go any further, and, and Sam says, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. That's what the elders do. The elders say to the pastor, we can't carry the burden that you wear. And how do you know that your pastor wears a burden? No. This tells you that I'm a slave. But there is something else that tells you I, I have a burden. What, do, what, are my, what are some of my vestments? This is the kind of stuff I love. Because this is when you start to see that things have meaning. What are some of my vestments? The chasuble. The chasuble, good, yeah. The chasuble is the one that is on the very, very, very outside. It's a poncho, basically, and the word chasuble comes from the Latin that means little house, which I think is great. So Jesus lives in his little house. Where is Jesus? He's right here in front of you. How do you know he's here? Because he's in his house. 
He's right here in his house, in his home, and he's giving you himself. How can you not know Jesus is there? What's on? Okay, yeah, the cincture with the little rope belt. Um, Which we don't see because you have Yeah, you don't really see that. That's good. I had a, a pastor friend who said, the greatest, the greatest argument for every single pastor wearing a chasuble is the fact that they wear a, an alb, which is the long white robe, and then a cincture. And it doesn't matter how skinny you are, when you tighten the cincture up right there at your waist, everybody looks fat. And, and if you are fat, you really look fat. And this pastor said, the best argument for telling every pastor they ought to be wearing a chasuble is this. Nobody wants to look at a gut hanging over a, a cincture. So cover it up with the chasuble and no one has to look at it. Which I thought was hilarious because even a, a bean pole like me, you put that on and you cinch it up and it, you get a little bit of a little gut there. Um, so anyway, yes, there's the all, there's the cincture, and then there's the... Stole. The stole matches the, the color of the day and it matches the chasuble. You don't really see much of the stole. You can see it coming out over, the, over my shoulders. But if you watch daily matins when I'm any, or any service where I'm not wearing a chasuble, there is the stole. The stole is a yoke. So you think of oxen. That is the burden of the pastor. That shows you that the pastor is burdened with the mantle and authority of his office, and it is a burden. Um, I have divine amnesia when it comes to the forgiveness of sins that I offer and the sins that I hear confessed to me in private confession and absolution, which I thank God for because I don't ever want to look at my people and remember the things that they confess to me. Because God doesn't, so why should I? Um, but the stole remembers, and every sin that is confessed is a greater burden that's placed on the soul, or on the stole. Every burial may, may, is another weight that is put on there. Every, every death is something that goes on there. Every issue is something that goes, so that the pastor's burden gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier, um, where, you know, Christ says, take my yoke upon you. The pastor says, I really am taking your yoke and we're not trading because I'm bearing the yoke that is the office of your ministry, that weight. Um, so that is the sign of the pastor's authority in the office and the burden of that authority. The elders cannot bear that burden with the pastor, but they can bear the pastor. I can carry you, Mr. Frodo. And that's what they do. Um, so when it comes to things like excommunication or other really big spiritual issues, the pastor always ought to consult the elders and work through those things with the elders who are there to help him and help uphold him while he is bearing those um, and help him to make the best decision about how to wield the authority of the office. And um, I can tell you here, I am very blessed with a board of elders that is uh, very faithful, devout, and very wise men who do a great deal to help me. And we don't have very many issues in this congregation. This is, again, a very, this is a, a special congregation, and we are so spoiled here. Uh, but it, every congregation has things that do pop up, and we're no different. And we have had some things that the elders were magnificent in helping me with. And any pastor should be willing to rely on his elders. But again, it's that physical means. The elders very often to the pastor are a working of Christ in assisting him, knowing that he can't hold, that, hold himself up. Like, um, think about the Red Sea. Was, um, what, what did Moses do? What was, was, what was the concrete physical mean, the sign? Right, holding up his arms. And could he do it? No, he had to have people come and help him. That's what the elder does. But that's also a physical means to the past. Do you see how, like, the whole point that I'm trying to make here is the physicality of everything. Um, God is no use to you if he's just spirit. Because why bother with a God who's just spirit? What good is he? Nothing. He doesn't do anything for you. You need to have something concrete. I was talking with somebody about the, was this last week, about the golden calf? Why do the Israelites make a golden calf? Why do they want something like that? It's physical. 
Yes, because it's physical. Aaron doesn't tell them, behold, a new God. He says, behold, this is your God. Who is the presence of Christ to the Israelites? Moses. Moses. And where is Moses? Gone. He's been gone so long. Where, where is Moses? Is Where is God? We have to have a physical God. You have to have a physical pastor because pastor is Jesus to you by virtue of the office. Now, I'm not going to walk around you know, in my street clothes raising people from the dead or anything like that. But when the pastor is functioning within his office, when I come to speak words of absolution to you, it isn't the man, it is Jesus. The pastor, by virtue of his office, because it's Christ's office, is Jesus to you, just like Moses was Jesus to the Israelites. His face even shone. Yes? Uh, a sister-in-law has a question about the golden calf. Okay. What was it about why they fall into the pagan stuff they were doing? Why, uh, just <laughs> like in the book of Judges when they always, or when, so they, intermi about, when they intermarry with the Canaanites and then start? No, when, when they had the golden calf, she said they started doing orgy stuff and weird stuff. Did they? I don't know. That was her question. If their they did the intention of the golden calf was just to replace their own, to replace the, God of... The golden calf, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm just, maybe I just have a really bad memory, but I don't remember that affiliated with the golden calf. Yeah. I do... From the right, I get the calf. They were all dancing. I get all my information from Charlton Heston. So, well, uh, I don't remember that. Now I'm second guessing myself, but I don't have time to look at it right now. Um, I don't. I don't know that they did that around the golden calf. They did um, later on, like in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, the priest Phineas. Uh, he took a spear and killed a couple fornicating on the altar by stabbing them through uh, in the act and you know, nailing them to the altar. <laughs> and the Lord said, ah, blessed are you, Phineas, here, have a priesthood. You're so, ze you're so zealous for my house and I love it. <laughs> but so that's, you know, there were like pagan orgies that took place um, and even in the Lord's house, but I don't remember that affiliated with the golden calf, per se. Um, but you know, at the time that they have the golden calf, they haven't even encountered the pagan nations yet. So the golden calf is about the presence of God and where it is and what it looks like. It's not ever enough that God is a spirit. God has to be something that is physical and concrete. Why do they go after pagan idols? Again, it's, it's influence from the from the pagans they intermarry with, but it's also because that's something that's real. That's something that's concrete. I can see it, I can touch it, I can hold it, and I want my God to be that way. A, a God that is nothing but spirit, or just believe in him. Okay, this is part of the problem with some of the evangelical theology about, well, just believe in Jesus. That's salvation. But what does it mean? What does is, what is believing in Jesus look like? What does, what, is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? You know, is Jesus here or isn't he here? Because if he's just not here and I'm just looking back at something he did and say, I believe that it happened, well, that's a spiritual thing and it doesn't do you any good. And you need something that's physical. You need a God that is actually with you. That's why Emmanuel is so important. God with us. That he is actually with you. That's why when you're baptized and they say Jesus is closer to you in baptism, after baptism, then your own skin. It's because it's literally true. It's not figurative. That's quite literal. He is actually closer to you than your own skin is to you. And how do you know that? Because there was, because there was something physical associated with it. So God has to be physical. Now that's the deal with, um, with the golden calf. As far as why the Israelites fall into the pagan orgies, well, for one, it's fun. So why wouldn't you? And everybody else is doing it. And the Israelites want to do what they want to do. They are stiff-necked people. They are, but who isn't, though? Yes. Everybody is an Israelite in that sense. Read the book of Judges and then look at your life and then look at society and realize it goes like this. Why are you lured away and enticed by things you know that you oughtn't? It, it, is, it is man's sinful nature. 
I want, I crave the things of the flesh. They have fun. That's really good. Why would God not let me do that? Why would God not let me go out and have an orgy? I think God just doesn't want me to have fun. And so they fall into those things. Now, liturgically, that happens too. There's a great quote from C.F.W. Walther, which I actually have on the back of the, the New Trinity tract about worship. So if you're curious about why worship is the way it is, that's a really nice introduction to that. Um, but anyway, his quote basically says, why are we becoming Methodists? Because we're afraid of Methodists thinking that we're Catholics. Why do I care if somebody looks at me and says, you look like a Catholic? Why, do, why, is, that, why is it that the that's too Catholic becomes the trump card? We ought to look like Catholics. That's what CFW Walther says. We ought to, I thank God. I, the differences between me and a Roman Catholic is not in the way we look or the way we conduct the liturgy or the way we practice. None of those things are actually different, or they shouldn't be. You should be able to walk into a high church Catholic mass and into a Lutheran church, and it should be exactly the same. Because the differences are not in what it looks like. So it's that sort of attitude. Why are we becoming like the pagans who are all around us? Well, because we're not content being different. We want to be the same. You're supposed to be set apart. Well, yeah, but... I want to be with them. And I love my wife, my pagan wife, and you know, she's going to do that, so we'll do it to keep the peace in the marriage. You know, or whatever, you know, things like that. So why do the, ultimately, why do the Israelites fall into, into the pagan? I don't know. Why do you fall into sin? It's that. It's the same thing. Why, why did they worship idols? I don't know. Why do you worship idols? Because, because you give in to the cravings of the flesh. You do what the flesh wants. So, does she listen to the podcast? Uh, I don't think she does yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you'll have to, trans you'll have to translate that, that <laughs> answer. <laughs> okay, now, um, where is this written? Well, John writes this in chapter 20. We already looked at this. What do you believe according to these words? Okay, now this is the really big important one. I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners. Look at, to this, uh, ministers, not the congregations. When the ministers of Christ deal with us, not when the congregations do. And they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better. This is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. Why? Why is it just as valid, even in heaven, as if Christ dealt with us himself? Because you are the uh, holder of the key. <sighs> yes, yes, yes. Make it intimate. Why is it as good as, or as if, Christ has dealt with you himself? Yes. Who am I to you? Because I am Christ to you, which means not only is it as if Christ has dealt with you, but he has dealt with you. And how do you know he has? Because you have the physical concrete means. Are you understanding the difference between means as being the physical concrete manifestation of Christ and his interaction with his people versus, well, the, the highway or funnel by which God gives me something from heaven? There's a difference there. That's why I don't use the term means of grace anymore. It's different because it's about the person of Jesus. That's why I prickle when Lutherans say, means of grace, the sacraments are just means of grace. Our faith is in Jesus. Now you've separated Jesus from the sacraments. And what good are the sacraments if Jesus isn't in them? Sometimes Lutherans really grind my gears. They're just, I'd say that no matter where I was. Anyway, you know, it's like, it's like the, it's the D students. Would you, would you rather have a pastor who was an A student or a D student? It's like, would you rather have a doctor who was an A student in med school or the D student in med school? I don't know. We'll never know. You will, you'll never know. <laughs> you'll never know. And that's the point. You'll never know. So it's not your place to judge that. But other pastors always know. Other doctors always know. <laughs> and this is part of the curtain that the laity, thanks be to God, don't 
see and don't ever really need to see. You should never have, an, you should never have reason to doubt your synod or your, uh, or your pastor. Um, so now, let's look at something. You might have an inkling. <laughs> um, let's look at this. Pass this around. While we're passing this around, I just, this thing keeps coming into my head. Okay, well, get it out of your head. About when I was a child and my cousin was excommunicated for getting pregnant out of wedlock. And I was a child and so I don't hmm. remember the details, but that was my understanding. And she and her entire large family left our church. Well, I can't really speak to that, obviously, because I don't know the circumstances. But I can say this. If it was, you're pregnant outside of wedlock, excommunicato, then you ought to excommunicate every single person in the church. It's the, it's the same attitude of you know, not wanting to go to the hospital because the hospitals where sick people are as you're hacking up a lung. Well, don't, do you not see the irony of that? Like, this is the place for sinners. This is a place for, for forgiveness of sins. So if, if it was just... Getting pregnant out of wedlock, you know, it's not. She can't well, keep doing that. It's like this. Do uh, you know um, people who of are? This is the 1960s. Well, it shouldn't matter. Yeah. Right. That, that's my point. Is it shouldn't matter what the time period is. Yeah. Um, you're pregnant outside of wedlock. Okay. Is it a scandal? Yeah. Always. There's always earthly consequences for things. It's not so much now. I think there should should be more of a scandal nowadays. Um, but that's beside the point. So anyway. Okay, um, you've committed a sin, obviously, and here you go. That's a perfect example of consequences for your sin. You have committed your sin, and now your sin has manifested, and your sin has manifested in a child. But the child is not your sin. Uh, your child is still a blessing. Um, so is the church then going to, you know, preemptively uh, ex excommunicate the child and then refuse to baptize the child because it was a child born of sin? Um, well, what child is not a child that is born of sin? I'll take you one further there. Not only was that child born in sin, that child was conceived in sin. All right, what you gonna do now, pastor? You be me. <gasps> that child was conceived in sin? Oh, you know. All right, so uh, what do you do? Well, you do what Jesus does. What did Jesus do to the woman who was caught in adultery? Caught in adultery. Remember what that means. I mean, someone was peeking through the window and then jumped through the window and said, Aha! Which, which is worse, the woman who was performing the adultery or the person who was following her around and spying on her to catch her in adultery? Yeah. That, that's part of the point that Jesus makes, yes. right? Y yes, neither one is worse than the other. They're both bad. So, but he offers absolution. So that's the way that the church is supposed to be. But you notice in the office of the keys, um, for when he, the pastor offers absolves those who repent of their sins and want to do better. You can't, I can't absolve somebody who is unrepentant. I can't forgive you the sins that you're not giving up. If you come to confession and then you say, well, I haven't done anything wrong, then what's there for me to forgive? So that's the problem. So if you have somebody who is unrepentant, then you excommunicate them, but not even just one, I talked to them one time and they said they, they didn't care, so I'm going to excommunicate them. I mean, that's a sort of a last resort deal. So excommunication, like closed communion, you, you, you absolutely must think about it this way. Church discipline, like any other kind of discipline, the spankings for your children or grounding your kids, it's, it's always motivated out of love. So excommunication is a very harsh punishment but it is motivated by love. We want you to be cut off from the Christian community so that you, you know, sit and think about what you've done for a little bit and stew in your sins and let the memory of your sins start to become so terrible for you that you never want to do it again, that you are cut off from the community and also then desire so fervently to be back in the community that you realize what you have done and then are, are brought to repentance and come back and say, Lord, I am the prodigal son. I am not worthy to be called your son. And before you say anything else, he covers your mouth and says, shh, 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 shh. Hey, bring a robe in here. Hey. Well, let me tell you the next thought that I had then. They uh -huh. went immediately to another Lutheran church and joined, and that was the end of that story. But here's what happens now. <laughs> That's a whole other. You know, if you can... <laughs> you, the brother pastors also have to respect the authority of their brothers. And, and if a pastor excommunicates, then even if they've done it 
incorrectly, it's still an excommunication. And, uh, and now anyway. the rest of the story is that in January, that church, the original church, my church, uh -huh. Okay. And well, so, I'm sorry to hear that. And so I'm thinking, this was my cousin. There were five children in that family. It was the oldest one who got excommunicated. And I'm thinking, what that pastor did in the 1960s was remove, because that, our church was smaller than this one, mm -hmm. was remove a huge element of congregation from that church, which 50 years later closed. Potentially. Again, I can't 60. say one way or the other. <laughs> but p potentially. Sometimes people are, and I'm, this is not a comment about your cousin, but sometimes people are people. Like I knew a guy who got a call to somewhere in Iowa. The Third Lutheran Church, and he thought, this is weird, Third Lutheran Church. <laughs> drives down the main street, drives past First Lutheran Church. Block later, he drives past Second Lutheran Church. Two blocks later, drives past Third Lutheran Church. And he says, what's going on? Well, everybody used to be a part of First Lutheran Church. But then they were getting new pews, and a whole bunch of people didn't like the pews that they got, so they left and then started Second Lutheran Church. And then they were getting new carpet at Second Lutheran Church, and they didn't like the color of the carpet, so a whole bunch of people left there and formed Third Lutheran Church. And so people can sometimes do that too, where like there, were, there, were, uh, there was an issue here before my time with, regarding a funeral, and the family demanded that the pastor allow for a eulogy, and the pastor was very firm and said, absolutely not. And uh, from what I have heard of the situation, I think that there's fault on both sides, because I think that there's you can offer a little bit of grace and at least offer an option, like not in the service, but I'll, you can allow some time at the graveside or I'll set up a mic for you during the meal. And like, mm -hmm. if you want to do that, that's fine. It just can't be part of the service. Um, but anyway, the pastor was adamant no and the family was adamant yes. So the entire family and all of their friends left the church and then just went to another Lutheran church. And it's, then it's one of those situations where you say, well, what's, what's going on? Like, where is the grace? Um, I don't know. Those are just kind of my thoughts. So, I, who, who knows? Well, I'm glad I got it out of Yeah, who, who knows? Who knows? Now, let's look at this. This is the breakdown of absolution. These are the words that I say, and here is what they mean. Upon this, your confession. And in your confession, you're acknowledging your fault. You're, you're, you are repentant. You are fleeing from evil. You're turning to Christ. You're giving... Jesus, you know, you're, you're giving your sins to Jesus. Jesus has a burden. He's the pack mule, and you come to the pack mule, and he's a really great pack mule because you can just continue putting stuff on him, and he never buckles. He just says, all right, yep, I think I can probably take some more. Do you have some more for me? Yep, put it on me, put it on me. That's Jesus, and that's part of confession is putting, you know, saddling Jesus up with, with the sins. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem and takes them away. He undoes them on the cross. So here it is. Um, I, I'm going to give all my sins to Jesus so that Jesus can crucify my sins with him. Okay, that's confession. I, that is the pastor, by virtue of my office, which is not according to the man. It is not the man that is doing this. That's why the pastor vests to um, absolve. If you ever you know, schedule time, you want to come for private confession and absolution. When you get here, I'll say, okay, great. Give me a moment to vest and then you can come in. So I will put on the full vestments and the stole and I will be there vested because it's, again, the, this physicality of the means, the concrete reality that this is, you're, you're saddling me up, which is really saddling Jesus up, and Jesus is speaking the words to you. And if it were just, you know, if I was up there in a Hawaiian shirt and, and jean shorts and flip-flops, and I said, yeah, I, by virtue of my office, as a caller remain, blah, 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 would it, um, would it have the same effect? It, it would, but is it concrete? It's not physicality. Right, there's no physicality. You're removed now, and, and it doesn't have the same effect on you. You don't walk out of that going, yeah, my sins are absolutely forgiven. I don't, what was he, I don't, what's going on? Was he the pastor? Wasn't he the pastor? I don't See, there's, so anyway, by virtue of my office, I'm not a man right now to you. I am Jesus to you. I'm called, which means two things. Firstly, I'm called by God to serve the church generally. I'm a pastor whether I have paperwork or not because I am ordained. The church has given me the authority and, and the apostles have given me the Holy Spirit. 
that doesn't just go away when all of a sudden, you know, like, like a pastor who retires, is he a pastor or not? Well, he doesn't have a congregation. He doesn't have the paperwork to say he was called. Yeah, but he has an ordination. <laughs> so you're called by God to serve the church. And then within the church, you are called by specific congregations to serve within that locale. So when I say that I am a, a called servant of the word, what I'm saying to you is God has called me to be a pastor and to wield the authority of the church. And I do. And now, locally, where is it that I wield this authority? I wield it here in Mound City because the congregation here has called me to be the pastor here. But that also means that I am not called to be the pastor at Maryville or in St. Joseph, even though I am ordained and I could go and administer the sacraments there or uh, receive someone into fellowship who had been excommunicated. I could do that, but they are just as ordained as I am. Whose ordination means more? Neither. They are ordained and I am ordained. We are both serving the church with apostolic authority, which means that I have to respect the apostolic authority of all of my brother pastors. If they will not do a wedding because a couple is cohabitating and they come here and ask me if I will do the wedding instead, I will say no. Because of their pastor wielding his authority, which he has been called to wield in that place. Now this is the problem. I might be called by God to serve the church and I might have the authority that I, I was given in ordination, yes. But I am not called to be an itinerant preacher and just run around administering that authority and wielding it wherever and whenever I want. You are always called secondarily to serve in a specific locale. I am called to wield the authority of God and I have the authority of God that he wants me to use in Holy Trinity, in Mount City. Okay, that's what that means. And ordained, it means, again, I'm a recipient of the authority of Christ. I have the Holy Spirit, I have apostolic authority. Servant of the word, that's this. I do what I'm told, not what I want. That's why if you come to me and you are repentant, I don't choose whether I'm going to forgive your sins or not. I must forgive your sins. That's why if you come to me and you say, I desire the sacrament, I don't care if you come to me every single day or every six hours every day, uh, I am required to give it to you. I don't get to say no if you ask me, can I please have the sacrament? I must give it to you because it's not about what I think, it's about me being bound in servitude. I am a servant and what do I do? I announce the grace of God unto all of you. And in the stead of my, by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. This is again what I'm talking about being means, concrete means. This is a concrete reality to you. I am Jesus to you. I am not just a man. And I add this word, I therefore, which is to emphasize the fact that I am doing this because of all of these external things, because of the commands that Jesus has given me, not in my own head, by, in, you know, I'm on a leash, I'm a servant, I've been told that this is what I'm supposed to do, I have holy orders that were given to me in ordination that I am fulfilling for the rest of my life, and I am doing, I, this is part of me fulfilling my holy orders right now. I therefore, Forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is something that comes through the working of God. And it has to be the triune God, because this is also the God into whom you have been baptized. Absolution is a continuation of baptism. The water that is, like we say in the catechism for baptism, the old Adam is daily drowned. Absolution is, is a repeated thing. Okay? And then this is from the Augsburg Confession, right here. It is not the voice or word of the man who speaks it, but it is the word of God who forgives sins, for it is spoken in God's stead and by God's command. Okay? It is not the voice of a man speaking, it is the voice of Jesus. I am Jesus to you, according to my office. Now, I've, you've got to be careful with that. Don't rat me out for saying that. There was a pastor in Nebraska who was defrocked because a little boy came out of church and said, hey, it's Jesus. And he said, you know what? I am. 
And some folks from the congregation ratted him out, and he was defrocked because there is no Jesus but Jesus. And I'm not saying that there is another Jesus. What I am saying is, if I wield Christ's authority, if I am speaking the words, or if the words of Christ are coming out of my mouth, uh, if I am appointed by Christ to do Christ's work, or to be the means by which Christ accomplishes his work, then I am quite literally Jesus to you by virtue of the office. My words are Jesus' words. My acts are Jesus' acts. My deeds are Jesus' deeds. What I give you is Jesus, and the one giving it to you isn't me, it's Jesus. Now, this is why the pastor covers himself up. This is why I vest. Because the only thing that you need to see of the pastor is the feet that are going to take him to where you are, and the hands that are going to deliver Jesus to you, the mouth that speaks the word of Jesus to you, and the ears that hear your confession and lock your sins away. Um, that's why pastors vest. Now, I wear a chasuble. This is part of why the chasuble is there. It's the, you know, the, the finishing touch on all of it. It's the house in which you, know, you dwell. But uh, you'll never be able to unsee this image. That's why if we aren't having communion, I don't wear the alb, which is the long robe, the long white one. I wear a cassock and a surplice uh, because it's a different kind of thing. The alb is liturgical underwear. It is meant to be the underwear that goes under everything else, but especially the chasuble. If you're not going to wear a chasuble, you don't wear an alb. You have to wear a different kind of underwear. You put on your long underwear, literally. A big long gown underwear, big long cassock. Okay? So, um, wearing an alb and a stole with no chasuble is a, the equivalent of showing up at a fancy... Uh, black dress party in whitey tidies and a necktie. <laughs> so you never can unsee that. What, but then every, see, and I don't mean to ruin you because now every time you, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, not for me. It'd be, it'd be funny if someone did it. I wouldn't want it to be me. But see, now you can't ever go to another church and see a pastor that doesn't wear the chasuble because you look at him and you just kind of think, <laughs> Something's missing here. Oh, dear. Now, here's a really great quote. This is from C.S. Lewis. In a letter to Mary Nayland, he writes, The confessor is the representative of our Lord and declares his forgiveness. There's also a really great quote from the Church Fathers that says, um, What the Lord's priests say on earth, God ratifies in heaven. So what, any, if I say your sins are forgiven, it's really not me. It's God that's saying, yep, I'm erasing this. This never happened. It's just been undone. Um, your sins are really forgiven. Um, the thing that always gets me, and I repeat this in my head, that yeah. you are announcing the absolution and in the stead and by the command. I'm it is Jesus, yeah. When I say I mean, in the stead, if I say in the stead and by the command, I'm, what I'm saying to you is, it's Jesus. Jesus is here. Jesus is taking care of you. Jesus is taking your sins. Um, everything's going to be okay. You know, when Jesus is around, everything's okay. That's why St. Paul talks so much about joy. How can you have joy and hope and all these things? Well, it doesn't mean happiness. You know, that's, that's one thing to, to get out of your mind, is that to be joyful doesn't mean to be happy. Because you, you can be very sad and also be joyful. Uh, but why can you be in that position where you have joy. Well, because Christ is taking care of you. You know, Christ is never going to let you down. Christ is always going to take care of you. In, um, you know, it's like the wedding vows. In sickness and in health, well, he'll be there. For richer or for poorer, don't worry. He's not going to leave you. You know, um, when you're young and attractive and older and not as attractive, oh, he'll always think you're beautiful. Don't worry. Christ is never going to leave you. Uh, you. You're guaranteed that. Uh, now, it is true uh, no man can forgive sins. That's, again, why the pastor covers himself up, because I don't want you to look at me and think that I'm a man, because I'm not. The man uh, should never get in the way of the job of the pastor. The man should never get in the way of the job of the pastor. So my opinions as pastor uh, about this or that should never get in the way of me taking care of my people. If I end up an opinion that says, well, I don't think so-and-so should be forgiven, but they come and they are repentant and they confess and I'm angry and holding a grudge, I, don't get, I have to leave all of that behind because the man cannot 
impede the office. The office will do its work. Christ will do his work in the office. And very often the man can impede. That's a really um, difficult thing that pastors learn often the hard way and a a thing that is a lifelong and ongoing struggle for pastors. Um, Here's a really good example. It's very easy as a pastor to get a big head. If you have a big head as a pastor, the man is in the way of the office because you are taking care of people not for your own glory. You're not writing sermons for people's praise. But when you start to feed off of that praise, this is, again, so this is part of the reason I don't take credit for sermons is because it's an exercise in me making sure that my head doesn't get too big. Because, confession time, I am a, a, a person who tends to think uh, too highly of himself. So within the office, I I work extremely hard not to. And that's one of the exercises is doing that. But but any pastor should just divert praise from sermons because you don't write them for praise. And and if you really did get something out of it or you did think it was good, I should never say, oh, great, I'm glad, Uh, thank you. I worked really hard on that one. Do I work really hard? Yes, and some, some sermons I work harder on than others. Uh, but it doesn't matter because the purpose of those, the purpose of the work of the pastor is never to receive attention. There are photographs of pastors out there and what I hope for someday is that this congregation is going and they look at those faces and they have no idea who those people are, that those people are long forgotten because that's what I am. I am here to be forgotten. Christ will never be forgotten, and Christ is alive in the work of the pastor and in the administration of the sacraments and in his word. Um, But the pastor is a man in the office, and he is not there to be remembered or esteemed or anything like that. He's only there to point to Christ. The pastor is an icon. The pastor is an icon. You're not supposed to look to the pastor. You're supposed to look through the pastor. The pastor goes... Don't look at me, look over here. Look where I am pointing. Don't look at my finger. Look at where my finger is pointing. It's Jesus. Don't look through me. So the pastor clothes himself because that's one way that the pastor can make sure that he's out of his way and that he is out of your way. So the pastors that vest and really understand what it is to vest also do it really more for you than they do it for themselves. It's not as much a matter of taste. Now, you know, the kind of chasuble that we would get, well, yeah, you know, that's... I'd be really, if, if, if money were never an option, of course, you know, I would be really picky. Um, oh, well, look at this. And you could not even begin to imagine how expensive some of these things get. Just absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, the, 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 the altar pyramids that they use at the seminary cost them at least $10,000 for one liturgical color. And you think, you know, like, so, uh, it's, but it's not really about It's not really about me or my taste or any of that. It's really about you because you deserve to have a pastor who's willing to cover himself up and let you better see Jesus. That's the point. Recently died, used to make stoles. I remember staying in her house and she had in her sewing room several stoles and Mm. chasuble. They they just blow my mind. My grandma is a very good seamstress. She has been sewing her whole life. Um, very good. She made my mom's wedding dress, my, her sister's wedding dress, my, their sister-in-law's wedding dress, my sister's wedding dress. She just, she, so she's very good. And I keep meaning to tell her, hey, you know, you really need to start sewing vestments and paraments because you'll make a killing. You know, uh, Granny Gamarelli, that's what I say. You should call it Granny Gamarelli. Gamarelli is the vestment maker in Rome that makes all the Pope's vestments. Say, Granny Gamarelli. Little slice of Italy right here in, in the U.S. of A. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, what, God, what priests do here below, God ratifies up in heaven. So this is something that's really happening. And when absolution is proclaimed, of course, it's not the pastor who says it. Uh, again, because my joke is always, if, I, if it were up to me, I probably wouldn't forgive you about half the sins you confess. <laughs> but thanks be to God. Excuse me. Thanks be to God, it isn't up to me. Um, so, then when it comes to you actually confessing to your pastor, there's divine absolution, or um, um, amnesia. 
divine amnesia is what I call it. So some pastors, I don't, I don't know that every pastor agrees that this is a real thing. I do, um, that, that I don't really remember the sins that are confessed to me. So how could I, you know, I, I've sworn in my ordination vows not to divulge the sins that have been confessed to me. And I really, I can't because of the confessional seal. But how can I confess what I don't remember? And it's sort of like God, right? If God forgives your sins, how can God hold against you or even remember what has never happened? It's sort of that same thing. So you want to come and you confess your sins to me and then it's like, God gives me divine amnesia. I walk out of that sanctuary and it's like, <laughs> complete mind wipe. Some people are afraid to come to confession and absolution because they think, well, what is pastor going to think of me? And the greatest response that, I came, that I've come up with for that is this. Don't worry, I couldn't possibly think any less of you than I already do. <laughs> Which I said in Bible class once and everybody just kind of sat there and I was like, it's a joke, it's funny. I think very highly of you. But the point of the joke is, I already know that you're a sinner. How are the particulars of your sins going to change my opinion? I already know. Do you think that you can confess to me anything that would surprise me? Try me. You'd be amazed what pastors hear. I have, I do, I do a ton of driving, so I've got a, I've got a little bit of audible, and I, my, I got my credit for this month, and I bought the father, complete Father Brown, so I've been listening to Father Brown, and I just absolutely love Chesterton, and I love Father Brown, and uh, I think it is so funny, because there was one of those Father Brown mysteries where everybody thought that Father Brown was dumb because he was a priest, and then he said, yeah, well, I learn a lot because people come to confess. I, lo I know more about criminal activity than any criminal because all the criminals come and confess their sins to me. <laughs> so, you know, you'd be, you'd be very much surprised at the kinds of things that a pastor actually does know, although he, you know, you forget all of those particulars. I couldn't say, oh, yeah, well, so-and-so came to confess to me, and, and that's how I know X, Y, Z. Or you just don't really know, so as what God then does in heaven affects his priests as well. So when he undoes the sin and when what is said is ratified and he, you know, it's undone, it's erased, it's forgiven, then so too the priest doesn't look at his people and say, you dear children are really a mess. I know what you confess to me. Or when the state comes and says, divulge, did, did they confess? I say, I don't know, I can't. <coughs> It's not even that I, uh, that I am not cooperating, it's that I can't, because there's, what am I, what is there to remember? God has undone it. I can't, can't do that. Um, now finally, what does absolution do? Already you know that it forgives your sins, but did you know that it also drives away the devil? Absolution, holy absolution drives away the devil. It strengthens your faith. It provides comfort. It invites the Holy Spirit back to you. It invites the holy angels closer to you and uh, permits the Lord to continue working in you. So this is the last thing for today then. I want to hand this out to you. This is confession and absolution in art. And I'm sorry that, you know, that there's this clip art or this little cartoon, which isn't my favorite, but it's the only thing I could find that was what I was looking for. I'll have to commission someone to do what I want. Are you aware that there's a new Father Brown um, sort of follow-on, Sister Boniface, who is in the same area as no, Father Brown? No, Sister Boniface. So solver. Oh. Father Brown does well, appear. Yeah, okay. He, he does appear in one episode with her. I'll have to this look. This is in the 60s as opposed to his was in the 50s. Okay. But she's a, she's a CSI. She has a chemical lab and all that sort of thing. Oh, that reminds me. Have you heard of this sister in Washington, D.C., who is a retired lieutenant colonel with the military, with the army, with the, oh, I don't remember, with the army, navy, marines, something like that, and is also a licensed medical doctor holding a license in general family practice and in general surgery, who is a nun who works for free, she provides medical care for free to, to underprivileged and uh, undocumented people. And she's suing the uh, United States government and the government of Washington, D.C. because of the vaccine mandate, because the, vac the, the vaccine mandate has shut down her practice. She can't, because she can't practice medicine without it. So, and this, boy, she had a speech about it. 
This, I wish every sister, and I wish every Christian was like that, but holy smokes, you do not, you don't mess with them. I would, every Christian ought to be like that. You know, every pastor ought to be willing to, did I ever tell you the story about the pastor in Baltimore who went into the gang meeting? He walked down, okay, inner city Baltimore, this pastor, uh, who is not a tough guy pastor by any means, but one of his confirmands stopped coming to class. Turns out he got involved with some of his cousins in a gang or something like that. So he was at a gang meeting. His pastor found out where it, the gang meeting was and when put on his cassock and marched down there, crashed through the doors, grabbed his confirmand by the ear, looked at everybody and said, you stay away from my people, and then dragged the boy out of there by the ear and the, everyone's like, oh, yes, sir, we're so sorry, sir. And nobody ever messed with his people again. None of his, none of his conference ever went there again. And it's like, that's the kind of, a th that's what a pastor needs to be willing to do. A pastor needs to be willing to march down to the city council meeting if they're doing something that is bad in town and just let them have it. A pastor needs to, because that's part of protecting your people. And I love it. I just was so proud of that little sister. She gets, you know, with her habit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my. Okay, so let's look at this. There's two things here. Firstly, so there's a little boy, he's confessing his sins. Now, who's listening to the confession? The priest and Jesus. Not the priest and Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, right. See, this is, this is the means. So the, the pastor is really nothing more than an ear. Um, so that's why often if, if you'll come to confession and absolution, I actually will sit with my eyes closed. So I'm not even like, I won't even look at you. Just kind of sit and you, and you, I sit um, perpendicular to you so that where you are, I'm like this. Or actually the way it's set up right now is like this, so that I'm like this. And Casey, you're at confession and I sit like this quietly and you're, you're not looking me in the eye. You're just talking into my ear, which is great. You see how the priest... He's not talking to the priest, he's talking to the priest's ear. And really, ultimately, you're confessing your sins to Christ. Okay. From, uh, from your lips to God's ears. Yeah. Is that what that saying means? Yeah. Wow. So here, um, this next one is an Eastern Orthodox painting, and I love this one. So there's the priest. And this is actually something you don't see as often in the Lutheran church, although I know some Lutheran pastors that do it that I, I don't personally, because I like to have my hands actually on you, but they will take their stole, and they'll put their stole over you first, and then put their hands over their stole as a, another one of those concrete signs that they're forgiving your sins by virtue of their office. So they put the sign of the office over you, and that's the thing. But you see here, look at that. Christ is there, shining down. There's an angel there putting a crown upon the absolved sinner. And who's slinking away? Satan. Satan. Look at that. It drives the devil away. It's a miraculous thing. And this is a quote I want you to remember. The ear of the pastor is the tomb where sins go to die. The ear of the pastor is the tomb where sins go to die. Okay? So what goes into that tomb doesn't come out. Don't try to bring them back. That which is often what we try to do. If you give your sins up, you don't get to have them back, so don't fight to try and get them back. Give them up and just let the past, you know, let Christ have them. Don't, no Indian giving when it comes to sins. Okay? Any questions? Okay, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. How many buttons?